Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Feck and Metal, or Ark Sabbath, episode 2.5. I am your host, Fergal Trainer. I told you last week, I warned you, I'm in too deep with this numbering system. It's too late to change it now. Uh, so episode 2.5, why is it 2.5? Well, because I don't consider it a full episode. On this episode, I'm going to cover off the albums uh, Never Say Die and Technical Ecstasy with uh, comments from Melissa, Uncle Steve and Rye, uh, who featured on the previous episodes of my Black Sabbath arc, Arc Sabbath. And we are going to talk about those two albums and I'm going to read a few passages from some books that I've previously mentioned as well, uh, covering that time period and just covering off the end of the original Ozzy Osbourne era in Black Sabbath, which ended in 1979. Now, um, at the start there, uh, you heard the song Changes, which I've always loved. The original version, of course, not the version Ozzy absolutely butchered with his daughter Kelly Osbourne back in the early 2000s, but I've always thought that original version of Changes was quite a poignant song and uh, it's kind of heartbreaking. Uh, maybe especially if you've ever been through that yourself the lyrics really hit home but I uh, just want to make reference to the fact that um, yeah we did kind of lash through a few of the most important albums in heavy metal history last week uh, in a 130 minute episode and I fully realised that but this is not a deep dive podcast about Black Sabbath and if you are looking for such a podcast I recommend you listen to Rise Sabbath Bloody Podcast which I've recommended in previous episodes of course and he goes into all of the albums individually and does uh, a deep dive because he's part of the Deep Dive Podcast Network on Twitter uh, with other podcasters who host podcasts about bands such as Iron Maiden, Maiden A to Z, uh, Uriah Heep, um, Deep Purple and other bands kind of from that era as well so Go and have a listen to that. You know, that's uh, a deep dive podcast if you're looking for such a thing. But this series for me is just a platform for numerous different people to talk about one of the greatest heavy metal bands of all time. And for me to experiment with structure and form of podcasting and editing as well, really. And to try and tell a story along the way. And that's what I'm going to be doing on this episode as well. So, um... We did cover off several albums in one episode, and we're going to cover off a couple more in this one. And, you know, that time period was so rich with hits. Uh, you have the likes of Changes that I played there at the start. Of course, you have the likes of Supernaut. Let's not forget the absolutely anthemic Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath.
and a song that came up a few times as well, Spiral Architect. So as I said, a period rich with heavy metal history, heavy metal classics uh, from Black Sabbath, probably hitting their creative peak of the Aussie era around that time. Um, and these next two albums are usually the albums people don't really like as much. Um, they're often seen as ranking quite low on, on lists of the best Black Sabbath albums of all time. People pick on everything from the artwork to the songs, the songwriting, the lyrics. Um, and it, it was a period rife with uh, um, turmoil. Ozzy Osbourne originally left, then he came back, then he was fired, and they had a different singer in between, and then they ended up moving completely onto a new singer with Ronnie James Dio. And I'm going to talk about that period of turmoil at the end of the episode while referencing um, some texts. Sorry for stepping on your gimmick, Roy, uh, but you did not actually reference these specific passages in your podcast yourself, so I feel like it's fair game uh, because I did listen to your episodes on technical ecstasy and never say die and heaven and hell covering that time period and you didn't read out these pieces but i do want to read out some uh, passages from i am ozzy by ozzy osbourne uh, iron man my journey through heaven and hell with black sabbath and the eternally idle cadabra by tony iomi and uh, mick wall's book symptom of the universe so i'm going to be reading some passages out there because this time period is so important with black sabbath they completely went in a new direction with ronnie james dio a completely new sound, and they left their original singer. These are four lads who'd grown up with each other in Birmingham in the 50s and 60s and went to school together in some cases. And all of a sudden, one of their friends has been kicked out. And there were other comings and goings as well around this time. It was just a, a time period rife with, uh, I'm going to use the word turmoil again for the third time. But uh, it's to me, this is where the story gets really interesting as well. So the music is always good, even right through the Tony Martin era. Spoiler, I quite enjoy the music of Black Sabbath. But uh, it's the comings and goings and the behind the scenes stuff, the behind the curtain, um, the characters involved. And what would happen next here over the next three or four years is just the most disruptive uh, lineup changes I, I can remember with any very prominent heavy metal band. Like any of the, any of the prominent bands, I don't think ever went through as much disruptive lineup changes as Black Sabbath did from the period of 78 to 86. Um, you know, it was just anarchy. So, uh, with that in mind, let's talk about those two albums that I mentioned. So, we finished off on Sabotage um, last time, and now we're going to move on to 1976's Technical Ecstasy, the album which most people say is the worst Black Sabbath album of all time. Uh, with Ozzy, anyway, at least. Um, so uh, here is what Melissa had to say about that. I don't know what happened. I don't know if they just were like sick of looking at each other and they just didn't want to be in the same room. But the record company saying we need something and they just thought they'd throw something together. I don't know if maybe they were trying 
again, you know, they wanted to experiment and they were hearkening back to their, to their roots. Um, I don't know what they were thinking. I would love to ask Tony Iommi what he was thinking on technical ecstasy. I'll get him on the podcast and I'll ask him about, I'll ask him about that. I love Never Say Die a lot. I think that gets really lampooned because the band kind of rejects it a little bit too. Um, they kind of accept the fact that they did Tech X and, and, but they always shit on Never Say Die and it's got such a cool vibe. It's got a bit of a party rock kind of feel to it at times. Uh, Tech X is more proggy for sure. I wouldn't, but a lot of people lump those two together and they say, oh, those are the ones when they were all messed up and they weren't, but the output is kind of cool. And uh, it kind of becomes Iomi's band at that point, I find around Tech X. Um, it's very compositionally driven by what Iomi wants to do, uh, which I'm not, I'm okay with. <laughs> I feel like he has a very good variety of, he's not a riff Luddite, like some people would have you believe who are just like, for six albums only kind of thing. The, the, the guy can play all kinds of different moods and vibes, yeah. I mean, there's some good riffs. There's some good riffs on there. I mean, you know, Tony famously has like a vault full of riffs. So I don't know that he did a whole lot of work. It just sort of seems like, you know, maybe he just <laughs> open a drawer and... <laughs> the conversation moves on to the song Dirty Women, which is seen by many as a late period classic, at least from the first Aussie era. Yeah, and they come back to the, they, that seems to be the one that they kind of use to represent both those albums uh, live as far as when they did, did the end cycle, which I kind of see because it's, it's got so much sonic variety in it, you know? I like Dirty Women. That's, that's probably the best song on the album. But like, and, and you know what? I, I don't, Rock and Roll Doctor's not a bad song, but the thing about that song is it's not really a Sabbathy song. It sort of sounds sort of a, like a boogie-woogie song. A bluesy song. I mean, it's not a bad song. It just doesn't sound like a Sabbath song. I asked Melissa if she felt the band had lost their way around this period of time. Absolutely. I think that they kind of were not sure what they wanted to do. Not sure that they still wanted to do it. Um, I think that, you know, you've got the people in the background, the lawyers, the, you know, the, the record company, everybody saying, you know, throw something out there, throw, you know, the, you know, the people don't care, you know, just slap your name on it and just, you know, put something out there. And, you know, when the album sold, it's not like people didn't buy the albums, you know, people did buy the albums. And back then you didn't listen to them beforehand. You know, you just, you went out and bought them, you know, Sabbath's got a new album. We're going to go get it. Um, I listened to your episode that you already put out your 0.5 Sabbath episode. And, you know, Melissa was talking about, technical ecstasy and how they thought it was so bad and everything. And, and I always hated technical ecstasy through the years. I just, but I listened to it this week and I was like, it's about 50, 50. There's some really good stuff on it and there's some really bad stuff on it. So we, well, what I think is funny is you listen to that first song backstreet kids and it doesn't really, you're going like, I can see when like, I was listening to this after I heard your episode and I heard Melissa say all that. And when I listen to Backstreet Cruise, I'm thinking, yeah, I can understand why they would immediately think that, but then you won't change me starts. And it sounds like from the beginning of the song, it's classic, slow, just drudging black Sabbath. So. Yeah. Um, it's, it ranks pretty low for me, but I, I definitely think it's a, an essential part of the, uh, of what we get afterwards as well. Um, as I mentioned kind of earlier there, like it's, it's very much an Iomi solo kind of project. Uh, 
vibe wise, I find. At least that's where I see the transition of it being less about the four lads from Birmingham and more uh, coked out overlord. Because <laughs> that's also when they, they start collaborating more with the keys and stuff. So um, uh, I think, is it, it's not Jeff there, is it? Jazz, the Jazz, Gerald, Gerald Woodorf is, the, I believe, on that one. Uh, so it's before Jeff Nichols comes in. But that becomes a big part of the way that Iomi kind of works, is he works with a, a multi-musician kind of guy. Uh, usually, well, keys is what they, they work it out on. Uh, I feel like at around Tech X, that's also when uh, Ozzy was, you know, in and out, losing interest, I believe. Um, them, like I know leading into Never Say Die, he actually did leave and they got another singer for a while, David Walker. Uh, so so like you can tell like at that point, and I think that's why Ozzy kind of shits on it in retrospect. I don't think that they he was engaged as much. Um, but I've never seen heard Iomi talk shit about technical ecstasy. I think he, he likes what he got in on it. Um, and it's a pretty cool kind of collaboration. You, you look at the overall, overall kind of arc of that album, it does flow pretty well. I think you know, on my episode, I did resequence it a little bit because there were some apparent, there were some things there. Like, I didn't like the way it leads off. I don't like the, I thought like, why wouldn't you, uh, uh, you can't change me. It's just like the perfect opener. And I'm like, why isn't that there? Like it's stuff like that. But you can see within the song, sounds like Gypsy, fantastic as far as the composition of it. That's maybe that's part of it. I mean, you really have to, kind of burn it down as a full album and like get into the vibe of it, start picking out pieces. But if you're trying to look for a single off those that's that screams Sabbath, it's a little tricky. I asked Rye how he felt about the infamous technical ecstasy album artwork. The two, two robots fucking on an escalator. <laughs> I'm in the, I like it uh, color wise, palette wise, maybe not content wise. It's not really doing much, but um it definitely has like a yeah futurist vibe to it. Um, I studied like graphic design in art school and shit, so I kind of like the, the the what it's referencing. I think it is referencing kind of that like Russian constructivist kind of. I don't want to get too pretentious with fucking <laughs> futurists. <laughs> it's too late now, but it's got it's got a sense of movement that's uh, you know the lines are very. Yeah. Um, it's not good if, if you need an art degree to appreciate it. So, <laughs> so maybe, yeah, it's shite. <laughs> I mean, you look at what's preceded, well, you look at what, what preceded it was sabotage. That was just like a, a bit of fuckery. Um, but before that, I mean, there's, there's no denying like Sabbath Play Sabbath is the greatest album cover of all time. And uh, Master of Reality, I love the, the way that they played with fonts there and stuff like that. Iconic logo creation. Um, but yeah, so I, I heard Speak of the Devil. I went back. I had a hard time getting into them, but but an album I did like when I first heard it, which I think I ranked it my absolute bottom album uh, the other day when I did this, was Never Say Die. Because, because Never Say Die is on um, Speak of the Devil. So immediately I'm like, okay. I, and I listened to that. And if you go to Never Say, Day, you got, or Never Say Die, you've got... Um, junior's eyes you got johnny blade i like both of those songs and the songs are kind of mellow but uh the one song that i used to always hate was is it swinging the chain that's the one bill ward sings i've tried to figure out though because i think 
he has what three lead vocals through their throughout the first eight albums, like all on the last two or three albums. Uh, it's all right is on technical ecstasy. Uh, I don't remember what the other, but I heard one the other day and I was like, Oh, I didn't realize he had three songs, but I didn't, but I started thinking his voice is not that bad, but I liked never say die. And like, I really like junior's eyes, which is about Ozzy's dad. If I rem- recall, and, there's a lot of interesting stuff. It's kind of a more mellow album in a way. Yeah, I think like the the title track made it on to comps a lot too, as far as like representing it in the, the box sets. It's usually just, uh, I think it's probably just Dirty Woman and uh, Never Say Die, the title track. Uh, I know the, the the only like greatest hits, like retrospective when I have other than like uh, your We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll and that stuff, which was more in the, in the time. Um, but like the retrospective ones, I know the symptom of the universe box set. I think it only had those on it. And at that time too, when I got that box set, I, w- I hadn't revisited those albums. So they, they felt like almost like I was like, Oh, are these like hidden tracks that like no one's ever heard before. And I think it had like, I think it had uh, evil woman on it too. And I, I was like, Ooh, it says that it's never released in America. Ooh, this is like some bonus material, but now it was like right there on the wax in, in the UK, but I didn't know. And then I think that, I think that a lot of people when, that were disappointed with technical. I think when never say die came out, they, because they loved the band so much, they just went ahead and bought it in hopes that it would be better. And it was better, but not a lot better, but it was better. But I think by then, by you know what? I have to say that after never say die, I was talking to John about this and we both were kind of like, you know what? Maybe they should just call it a day. And, and we were, we talked about that. We were like, yeah. And because the other thing was the discussion that we had was because he was telling me about the concert and he was saying how it was good, but they were a mess. Tony had made a few mistakes. Ozzy's voice didn't sound that good, that they were clearly not gelling. Um, he didn't say things like, he didn't say like Van Halen blew them off the stage, but he just said that, you know, they, he'd seen them, you know, previously, you know, in the past. And he was just like, yeah, they weren't up to snuff. They're just, they're tired. And they're just, maybe they've just run out of ideas and maybe they just need to just, you know, go their separate ways. And, and, and he made the comment, you know, maybe they should go their separate ways and just do their own thing, which obviously Ozzy did go and do his own thing. <laughs> All right. So there you have it. Uh, Never Say Die, the final album from the Ozzy Osbourne era of Black Sabbath until uh, well, for studio albums until 13, which was released in 2013, and there were one or two tracks sprinkled here and there, as discussed on previous episodes on the uh, Reunion live album, and there was another track which was played at live shows in 2001, but never really officially uh, got released. But um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, Ozzy kind of left then uh, in 1979, and, and that was the end of that era of Black Sabbath. Uh, as a lot, of, as I said at the start, a lot of people consider it the, the only important era of Black Sabbath um, but yeah they had eight albums under their belt at that point influencing everybody that came after them from Iron Maiden to Guns N' Roses to Metallica to Pat Boone but as I said at the start of the episode this period of the band was rife with turmoil so I'm going to read a passage from Ozzy Osbourne's book I Am Ozzy and he gives his account of initially leaving the band in 1977 returning shortly afterwards and being fired in 1979 so here's Ozzy's account I wasn't the only one going out of my mind with the stress of the band imploding. I remember one time, Geezer phoned me up and said, Look, Ozzy, I'm sick of touring just to pay the lawyers. Before we go out on the road again, I want to know what we're going to get. And I said to him, You know what, Geezer, you're right. Let's call a meeting. 
So we had a meeting, and I was the first one to speak up. Look, lads, I said, I think it's crazy that we're going out doing gigs just to pay lawyers. What do you think, Geezer? Geezer just shrugged and said, Dunno. That was it. I'd had enough. There didn't seem to be any point anymore. None of us was getting on. We were spending more time in meetings with lawyers than we were writing songs. We were all exhausted from touring the world pretty much non-stop for the past six years, and we were out of our minds on booze and drugs. The final straw was a meeting with Colin Newman, our accountant, where he told us that if we didn't settle our tax bills soon, we'd be going to prison. In those days, the tax rate for people like us was something like 80% in the UK and 70% in America, so you can imagine the amount of dough we owed. After the taxes, we still had our expenses to pay. We were broke, basically. Wiped out. Geezer might not have had the bollocks to say anything in front of the others, but he was right. There was no point in being in a rock and roll band just to worry about money and writs all the time. So one day, I just walked out of rehearsal and didn't come back. So that was Ozzy's account of leaving in late 1977. Now, as we all know, he came back and did the album Never Say Die, which you've just heard uh, several of my guests discuss there. So here's Ozzy's account of how he came back to Black Sabbath. The day I left Black Sabbath, we were at Rockfeld Studios in Wales, trying to record a new album. We just had another soul-destroying meeting about money and lawyers, and I just couldn't take it anymore. So I just walked out of the studio and fucked off back to Bullrush Cottage in Telma's Mercedes. I was shit-faced, obviously, and then, like a pissed dickhead, I started to slag off the band in the press, which wasn't fair. But you know, when a band splits up, it's like a marriage ending. For a while, all you want to do is hurt each other. The bloke they found to replace me after I walked out was another brummie called Dave Walker, a guy I'd admired for a long time, actually. He'd been with Savoy Brown and then Fleetwood Mac for a while. But for whatever reason, things didn't work out with Dave. So when I came back a few weeks later, everything was back to normal. On the surface, at least. No one really talked about what happened. I just turned up in the studio every day. I think Bill had been trying to act as a peacemaker on the phone. And that was the end of it. But it was obvious things had changed, especially between me and Tony. I don't think anyone's heart was in what we were doing anymore. Still, as soon as I came back, we picked up where we'd left off with the album, which we decided to call Never Say Die. So that's Ozzy's account of how he left in 1977 and shortly came back. But as we all know as well... After Never Say Die, that was the end of Ozzy's original tenure in Black Sabbath. And here's his account of what happened. I knew it was all over with Black Sabbath, and it was clear they'd had enough of my insane behaviour. One of my last memories of being with the band was missing a gig at the Municipal Auditorium in Nashville during our last US tour. I'd been doing so much coke with Bill while driving between shows in his GMC mobile home that I hadn't slept for three days straight. I looked like the walking dead. My eyeballs felt like somebody had injected them with caffeine. My skin was all red and prickly and I could hardly feel my legs. But at five o'clock in the morning, on the day of the gig, after we pulled into town, I finally hit the sack at the Hyatt Regency Hotel. It was the best fucking sleep I've ever had in my life. It was like being six feet under, it was so good. And when I woke up, I felt almost normal again. But I didn't know that the key I'd used to get into my room was from one of the other Hyatt hotels we'd stayed in earlier in the tour, in another city. So while my bags had been sent to the right room by the tour manager, I'd gone to the wrong room, which wouldn't normally have been a problem. The key I had in my pocket just wouldn't have worked, and I would have gone down to the reception and realised the mistake. But when I got to the room, the maid was still in there, plumping the pillows and checking that the minibar was full. So the door was open and I walked straight in. I just showed her the key, which had the right number and the Hyatt logo on it, and she smiled and told me to enjoy my stay. Then she closed the door behind her while I got into the wrong bed in the wrong room and fell asleep. 
for 24 hours. In the meantime, the gig came and went. Of course, the hotel sent somebody up to my room to look for me, but all they found was my luggage. They had no idea I was zonked out on a different floor in another wing of the hotel. The lads panicked. My ugly mug was plastered all over the local TV stations. The cops set up a special missing persons unit and fans began to plan a candlelit vigil. The insurance company was on the phone. Venues across America were preparing for the tour to be cancelled. The record company went apeshit and Thelma thought she'd become a widow. Then I woke up. The first thing I did was call down to the front desk and ask them what time it was. Six o'clock, the woman told me. Perfect timing, I thought. The gig was at eight, so I got out of bed and started looking for my suitcase. Then I realised that everything seemed very quiet, so I called back down to the front desk. Morning or evening, I asked. Sorry? You said it was six o'clock. Morning or evening? Oh, morning. Ah. Then I called the tour manager's room. Yeah, he croaked. It's me, Ozzy. I think there might be a problem. First there was silence, then tears of rage. To this day, I'd never had a bollocking like it. It was Bill who told me I was fired. The date was the 27th of April, 1979, a Friday afternoon. We were doing some rehearsals in LA and I was loaded. But then again, I was always loaded, all the time. It was obvious that Bill had been sent by the others, because he wasn't exactly the firing type. I can't remember exactly what he said to me, we haven't talked about it since, but the gist of it was that Tony thought I was a pissed, coked up loser and a waste of time for everyone concerned. To be honest with you, it felt like he was finally getting his revenge for me walking out. And it didn't come as a complete surprise. I'd had the feeling in the studio for a while that Tony was trying to wind me up by getting me to sing takes over and over again, even though there was nothing wrong with the first one. I didn't let it affect my relationship relationship with Bill. I felt bad for the guy actually, because his mum had just died. Then not long after I was kicked out of Black Sabbath, his father died too. When I'd heard the news, I thought, fuck the war, I'm still his mate, we're still the same people who lived in a GMC together for months on end in America. So I drove straight up to Birmingham to see him. He'd taken it really badly and I felt terrible for him. Then his dad's funeral turned into a joke. They were carrying the coffin out of the church when they realised that someone in the funeral party had nicked the vicar's car. The vicar refused to continue with the service until he got it back, but whoever had nicked the fucking thing couldn't get the steering lock off and ended up crashing into a garden. Imagine that kind of bullshit going down when you're trying to lay your old man down to rest. Unbelievable. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel betrayed by what happened with Black Sabbath. We weren't some manufactured boy band whose numbers were expendable. We were four blokes from the same town who'd grown up together, a few streets apart. We were like family, like brothers. And firing me for being fucked up was hypocritical bullshit. We were all fucked up. If you're stoned, and I'm stoned, and you're telling me I'm fired because I'm stoned, how can that fucking be? Because I'm slightly more stoned than you are? But I don't give a fuck anymore. And it worked out for the best in the end. It gave me the shove up the arse I needed and it probably made it a lot more fun for them, making records with a new singer. I don't have anything bad to say about the guy they hired to replace me, Ronnie James Dio, who'd previously been with Rainbow. He's a great singer. Then again, he ain't me and I ain't him. So I just wish they'd call the band Black Sabbath 2. That's all. So there you go from Ozzy. Um, a kind of a combination of looking back and trying not to say anything bad about his former band members and trying to take the high road with Ronnie James Dio, uh, littered with obvious bitterness and anger. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a unique take there from Ozzy Osbourne about what happened during that time. Now, Tony Iommi's book is not nearly as detailed with these matters, or indeed any matters that he writes about, really. Um, it's a much shorter book, and the stories and uh, his, his memory in general just doesn't seem to be as good. So here's Tony's take on that same time period. Preparing for the recording of Never Say Die, we were trying to write songs, but it was hard. While we were touring America, punk happened. We even had the Ramones supporting us at one point. 
I wouldn't want to put them down at all, but I think that it was the wrong match. They didn't go down well and were getting things thrown at them all the time, so we had to take them off the tour. I didn't know whether I liked this punk stuff. Aggression is one thing in music, but when it comes to spitting and cutting yourself, it just seemed a little bit far off to me. But I liked some of the songs, certainly later, and some credited Black Sabbath as an influence. I thought, oh, I can't see that, somehow. Punk coming in threw us off a bit. The Stranglers were at number one at the time. I remember Geezer saying, we're a bit old hat now with all these riffs and stuff. I almost felt like, God, what am I going to come up with then? And again, the other guys used to go down to the pub and then they'd come back asking, have you got anything? No, I can't think of anything. Writing became very difficult, especially after Geezer saying that. It felt like we didn't believe in what we were doing anymore. I felt hurt. I kept thinking, if I'm going to come up with a riff, then they'll probably say, oh, can't we do something else? The guys didn't say that, but I felt like they would. All this when I had already booked a recording studio in Toronto, so the pressure was mounting. Then Ozzy left. He just didn't want to do it anymore. It was a really difficult period for us, but we never considered packing it in. We asked ourselves, would he come back? He might change his mind, we don't know. But we also said, we can't just sit here. We have to do something. Me and Bill knew this singer from old, Dave Walker, uh, from the time when he was in a local Birmingham band called the Redcaps. He later sang with Savoy Brown and Fleetwood Mac, and he had moved to San Francisco. I remembered him having a good voice, so we got in touch with him. We were grasping at straws, really, thinking, we're here to write an album, and we have a studio booked, and we have no singer. We rehearsed with Dave for a while and wrote two or three songs with him. Word got out to the press, and we even did a local Birmingham TV show with him, but we just didn't feel it was right. Then Ozzy said, I'm sorry and all that. And he came back. We told Dave and he went. However, Ozzy didn't return until two or three days before we were due to get into the studio in Toronto. We couldn't cancel that because we paid a lot of money for it up front. But we still had no songs apart from the three we'd done with Dave. And Ozzy wouldn't sing those. Alright, so uh, slightly different uh, recollection there from Tony Iommi. But uh, he hits the main points pretty much the same as Ozzy Osbourne did in his book. Um, and now we, we move on to after the Never Say Die tour. Tony gives his recollection of the hotel room key incident it was a great tour but in our camp there were signs of cracking ozzy wasn't happy possibly his father's death had something to do with that jack osborne had died of cancer in the autumn of 1977 just before ozzy left the first time ozzy's dad was a great lovely guy and i attended his funeral but we never really spoke about it maybe ozzy just wanted to get away from it all for a while to deal with whatever hang-ups he had but we didn't have that luxury we couldn't take time off it got to the point where we just plodded on we'd achieved quite a lot and we'd all enjoyed success we all owned homes and cars everybody was comfortable perhaps we got a bit too comfortable and we lost our drive the aggression of wanting to go out and fight for it we also thought we're getting a bit too old for this because we saw the younger kids coming up like van halen we actually weren't even that old but we were in comparison to most of the new bands when we did interviews the question was always how long are you going to be doing this? Don't you think it's about time to pack it in? We were only 30, 35 years old and they started talking to us about retiring. We were becoming old hat and the spark had gone. Everybody was thinking, we're just going through the motions of it really and we're playing an album that we didn't even like ourselves. We played the Hammersmith Odeon on the 10th and the 11th of June 1978 and that was our 10 year anniversary. 10 years was a long time. Van Halen with David Lee Roth didn't even last 10 years. We recorded those shows and released that recording as a live home video cassette at the time. It was called Never Say Die, but the band was not well at all. And even though the patient was still up and about, the illness ultimately proved to be terminal. Well, before Ozzy left us for the second time, he went missing. In November, he disappeared before a show in Nashville. Supposedly, he had a bad throat. We checked into this hotel and he drank a bottle of night nurse cold and flu medicine. You're supposed to just have a few spoons, but he downed the entire bloody bottle. He went to his room, but ended up in the wrong one. 
He saw this room open, there was a maid in there, she came out and he went into the room, passed out on the bed and that was it. Meanwhile, his bags had been sent up to his own room. We were doing a show that night, but no Aussie. Oh blimey. We phoned his room, nothing. So we got the guy to go in and open the door. His suitcase was still there, all packed, and the bed was made. God, what's happened? We started worrying then. What's going on? I wonder if he's gone down to the gig already. Why would he do that? We went to the gig first to see if he was there, and there was no sign of him. We didn't know what to think. Then the rumour started that he'd been kidnapped. We even got it advertised on the TV, radio, and everything like that, that he was missing. It was just unbelievable, and it was getting closer and closer to showtime. No show. We had to pull the gig, which really went down well. We left it to the last minute thinking he might turn up. He had disappeared in the past and then just ended up in somebody else's house out of it, but never on a gig day. So we were half worried to death, half pissed off, thinking, we have a hall full of people, they are never going to believe us if we go on and say, we can't find Ozzy. We then really started to panic. Even though Van Halen played, the audience was going mad and we had to get out of there quick. We got in touch with radio stations every 15 minutes and they do a bulletin. Has anyone seen Ozzy? This went on and on, and we were all awake, all bloody night, wondering what the hell was going on. Then Ozzy phoned my room. What's happening? Fucking hell, what do you mean, what's happening? Where the hell are you? I'm in my room. You're not in your room. Yes, I am. No, you're not. I took this night nurse. I don't know what happened. I fucking passed out. So that was the story. We were convinced he'd been kidnapped, and there was going to be some ransom note. But he was in the hotel. We felt like fucking killing him. But Ozzy's disappearing act was only light entertainment in comparison with what would happen over the next couple of months. Things would only get worse. So, Tony goes on. After the world tour, the whole band moved to LA for 11 months. Again, it was a tax thing, so we thought we'd ship out there, write the next album, and record it. But it turned into a highly frustrating, never-ending process. Don Arden was managing us by then, with his daughter Sharon assisting him. I did a lot of the dealings for the band, so I was always in contact with her, talking about where we were going to live, rehearse, record, and whatever else. We all moved into this great house where we turned the garage into a rehearsal room. The next move would be to come up with ideas, but that just didn't happen. Again, we were doing a lot of coke going out partying and further partying at the house and then trying to write this stuff. It was hard. But what made it next to impossible was that Ozzy wasn't into it. He was on another planet. We try and motivate him by saying, any ideas? No, I can't think of anything. And then he'd pass out on the couch. It was frustrating because it was going on and on and we were getting nowhere. I'd be going to Warner Brothers Records because they'd want to see the progress and they'd go, how's it going? And I'd say, oh great, but we'd done nothing. How are the tracks sounding? Oh, really good. Bloody hell. What was I supposed to say? We'd been there for six months and we hadn't done shit. They didn't want to hear that. It got more embarrassing every time I went down there. We'd been there for months and Ozzy hadn't really sung much at all. We couldn't have a good conversation with him because he took more booze and drugs and was pretty much out of it. We'd all be out of it at times, but he was on a totally different level altogether. We could still create, but drugs and drink affect different people differently. I think Ozzy just lost interest in it all. We had about three ideas down musically, but we didn't know where to go next with Ozzy's input. We'd write a song and then he'd go, I don't want to sing that. He sang a bit on Children of the Sea, and that sort of fizzled away. It finally got to the point where we said, if Ozzy can't do it, we're going to have to either break up or we're going to have to bring somebody else in. Ozzy wasn't yet involved with Sharon then. As a matter of fact, I was involved with her first, but we only had a friend-like relationship. It was never a love relationship. I had to deal with her all the time and I liked her as a person. I said to Sharon, we're having such a problem with Ozzy. She went, oh, give him time. I said, we've got to get going. The record company's asking us where the music is. It got to the crunch and we had to give Ozzy an ultimatum. You have to do something, otherwise we're going to have to replace you. And that's what happened. Bill spoke to him and said, look, we're going to have to move on. It was sad. We'd been together for a decade. 
but it got to a point where we couldn't relate to each other anymore. There were so many drugs flying around, coke and quaaludes and mandrax, and there was booze and late nights and women and everything else, and then you get more paranoid and you think they hate me. We never fought, but it's hard to get through to people, communicate and solve things when everybody's out of it. For some reason I became the asshole in it all. Ozzy seems to think it was me who pushed it, but I was only speaking on behalf of the band and trying to get the thing going. Somebody had to make a move, somebody had to do something, otherwise we'd still be here now and we'd all be out of it. So that was it. I thought, maybe we should break up and I'll do something else. It was at that point Sharon introduced me to Ronnie James Dio at a party. She suggested that I should do a separate project and do that with Ronnie. I approached him and said, I'm in a terrible situation. I don't think it's going to work out anymore with what we've got. Would you be interested in doing something else? So, very intriguing there from Tony Iommi. He kind of glosses over a few things, I suppose. Um, He tries to paint himself as the person who was in the right and only doing things for the good of the band. I don't know really who the villain in this story is. It's hard to know, obviously, unless you were there. Uh, Many accounts seem to indicate that Ozzy was out of it all the time. Certainly Tony's does. Ozzy even kind of admits this himself before going down this bitter defensive route in the in the extract I just read so it's an interesting time I also find it very interesting that Sharon Arden at the time introduced Tony Iommi to Ronnie James Dio um, especially based on what would follow down the line in the next 10 or 12 years but uh, yeah here we go um, let's go to Mick Wall's book and see how he uh, captures this period in time because he's more or less um, an independent voice here he did end up working for Black Sabbath in a PR role, but I think that was only from the Heaven and Hell tour onwards. So here's Mick's account of what happened in his book Symptom of the Universe. Finally, Ozzy couldn't take it any longer. None of them could. But Ozzy, who'd always been terrified of Tony, who'd always flinched whenever Tony even came near him, was the first to bail out. In the latter part of 1977, it had been especially hard for Ozzy. His father Jack was dying of cancer. His band no longer felt real. His marriage to Thelma was unravelling. Ozzy was either out of control on the road or out of luck off it. When he went out surrounded by the usual posse of old friends and hangers-on, he felt like a circus freak. Stared out or started on, the best way he knew how to deal with it was snorting more coke and drinking more booze, smoking more dope and shagging more tarts. Nothing was off-limit. I did it all, he told me. The only one I never got into was smack. I tried it a few times, but it just knocked me out and I already had the booze and the downers for that. I'm lucky, I suppose, because that really would have been the end for me. Instead, the end would find him all by itself. Back at Rockfield Studios near Monmouth, for the first time since Paranoid seven years before, the band were supposed to be writing and rehearsing new material for their next album, scheduled to be recorded once again for tax reasons in Toronto in the new year. The feeling in the room where they played was the worst it had ever been. Feeling more pressured than usual to come up with the goods, Tony could not find the right vibe. Even Geezer, normally so tuned in as long as he had a joint and a drink in his hand, struggled to come up with anything useful. For Tony, this was unacceptable. He was used to Ozzy and Bill being useless, but Geezer was his co-songwriter, his fellow guitarist, the only other one in the band who was supposed to know what the fuck Tony was trying to do. Tony sacked him. There was just an air around the band that somebody had to go, Geezer would shrug and say years later. First it was me. They all had a meeting. Then Bill came over to my house and said I was fired. There was no reason. It was just that I was out of the band. Everybody else thought I wasn't into it, and that's why I should go. So I was a bit pissed off, you know, but I didn't want to argue about it. And I wasn't really that bothered, to be honest. I'd lost interest by then. Then about three or four weeks later, I get a call from Bill again, saying the band wants to meet me at the Holiday Inn in Birmingham. So I thought, what the hell's this about now? So I went and met them, and it was like, we want you back in the band. And I wasn't doing anything else, so I said, all right. It was just an upheaval in the band. It was like, somebody's got to go, kind of thing. But who's it going to be? And the first person was me. 
But then I went back to the band and then like obviously that caused a bad feeling. No matter how much everybody tried to disguise it, there was now this bad feeling in the band. A week later, they received a visit in Wales from their accountant, Colin Newman, who worked for Don. I knew there was something very bad going to come down, said Ozzy. In the fact that we'd never paid tax because Patrick Meehan used to say, don't worry about that, I'll take care of that. Everything was taken care of, you know. And then we left Patrick and Colin Newman came to Monmouth and he spent four fucking hours telling us the ins and outs and whatever. And basically he was saying, look, you ain't paid tax since fucking zero, day one. You gotta pay some tax. And after all this, Bill was pissed and he says, can you repeat that please? And I says, oh for fuck's sake, Bill, this is hopeless. So I just got up and walked out. And I was drunker than they were, but I drove my car like that from Monmouth in Wales to Staffordshire. I didn't even have a driving license. I just had to fucking get away. Tony went insane. How dare he? The lowest on the totem pole. Run off and leave the band in shit. Geezer and Bill were more fearful. Ozzy was the singer of the band. As Geezer said, you didn't just go out to the shop and buy another one. Would this leaving mean the breaking up of the band? But Tony was adamant, as Paul Clark retells. Put Tony with his back to the wall and he's a fighter. He'll always come at you. His attitude was like, fuck that, we'll get a new singer. And that's what he tried to do. The singer Tony turned to was indicative of the kind of counterintuitive moves he would consistently make over the next 20 years when it came time to find yet another singer for Black Sabbath. Instead of searching for somebody whose voice might easily suit a now extremely well-known back catalogue of material, he went for somebody that was as far removed from Ozzy personality and voice-wise as he could possibly get. In this case, it was former Savoy fr- In this case, it was former Savoy Brown frontman Dave Walker. Mick goes on to talk about this short-lived new Black Sabbath. In January 1978, the new Sabbath marked the new year by performing live on a local Birmingham Friday lunchtime TV show called Look Here, hosted by Toya Wilcox, blasting their way through War Pigs and a new track co-written with Dave Walker called Junior's Eyes. Friends and co-workers from Don's office and the record company said it was marvellous and predicted big things for the new lineup. Behind the scenes, though, Don was not amused, but he waited to make his move, and when he did, it would be decisive. Two weeks later, Ozzy's father died. It was the 20th of January, the same date his eldest daughter Jessica had been born, seven years before. Ozzy later told writer David Gans how during his father's last days in hospital he had been moved out of the main ward into a side room where the mops and buckets were normally kept. It was too distressing for the rest of the patients so they put him in a cot, sort of a crib thing, a giant crib. They strapped him like a boxer, fucking bandages on his hands with a glucose drip going into his arm. He was stoned out of his head. You know, the most amazing thing he said to me. I told my father one day, I take drugs. I said to him, before you go, will you take drugs? He says, I promise you I'll take drugs. He was on morphine, totally out of his mind on morphine, because the pain must have been horrendous. They had the operation on a Tuesday, and he died on Thursday. I haven't got over it yet. The 20th of January, I'll go freaking like a werewolf. I'll cry and I'll laugh all day long, because it's the day my daughter was born and the day my father died. Like a fucking lunatic. A month after that, Ozzy was back in Black Sabbath, and they were in Toronto making a new album. In the end, money prevailed, as it always would with Ozzy and Sabbath. Don read him the riot act, how they couldn't expect to draw the same level of advances from their record companies or concert promoters, with what he uncharitably, but not inaccurately, called this fucking nobody fronting the band. Especially now that Ozzy wanted back in, or as Ozzy later told me, I didn't know what I fucking wanted. All I knew was that I was on my way to being skint if I didn't get something else off the ground, but I was still so fucked up I knew it was never going to happen. So when they said, oh, we're going to Canada, do you want to come down too, or what? I thought, well, what else am I going to do? According to Geezer, the final straw came when they all arrived at the studio one day, only to find Ozzy lying unconscious in a pool of his own piss. Tony just went, 
I can't work with him anymore. He's just not into it. So let's just admit it. Ozzy's not into it. And it's either just spoil it or get somebody else in. According to Tony, though, when I spoke to him, it was Geezer and Bill that laid down the ultimatum. Bill and Geezer came to me and said, look, you know, we've got to do something. Either Ozzy gets sorted out or we're going to leave. I went, oh, thanks. Leave it to me, you know. So it just came to a situation where we had to tell Ozzy, look, if you don't do something, we're going to have to find somebody else. It really got to that situation where it was awful. But the band was going to break up. And so that's what happened, really. In fact, they all have their own versions of just how and why Ozzy was fired from Black Sabbath. According to Geezer, he had been so distraught at what he suggests was Tony's decision to fire Ozzy that he himself also walked out of the band shortly after. I cried my eyes out for two days, because like I always said, Sabbath is four people, Ozzy, Tony, Bill and me, and if any of us ever leave or are fired, it's not Black Sabbath anymore, said Geezer. And it wasn't. Geezer was so upset that he says a couple of weeks after Ozzy went he left, that he had personal problems as well and just couldn't get into it without Ozzy. So he pissed off for about three months. Bill, whom the others coerced into being the one to actually give Ozzy the news, now claims that he too was so utterly devastated by the decision that he never really recovered, a situation that led to his own messy departure from the band barely a year later. Says Bill, I felt lousy about the circumstances that surrounded the whole thing about Ozzy and being asked to leave, I've never really stopped feeling lousy about it. Even Ozzy would put his own spin on the story at times over the years, once claiming he went out of his way to deliberately get fired after receiving advice from an unnamed lawyer who warned him that if he left his, of his own accord, he would forfeit any payoff. The first Ozzy knew of it, though, was when he was told he'd had to leave the house they were all sharing in Beverly Hills. A maid came in and packed his things, and a driver was summoned to deliver Ozzy into the Le Parc Hotel in West Hollywood, where a small apartment had been reserved for him. I was thinking, hey, I don't really like what's going on here. But what if I jump out of the frying pan and into the fire? And when I did get fired, I was devastated because I thought, now that's it. It's all over. I'm back on the dole. I've lost it all. And so all I did when I eventually did get fired in California, I think Bill told me they had a meeting and that I'd got to go. And I was just fucking gutted, you know? So there we go. That's the final uh, few months or final couple of years of Ozzy Osbourne in Black Sabbath, as told by three different people. And well, when you consider Mick Wall's book, it's told by multiple different people within that extract that I read out there but uh, yeah I thought it'd be nice to just include some uh, personal accounts and biographical accounts of what happened during that hugely important pivotal period in Black Sabbath history and it goes on to uh, create the Ronnie James Dio era lineup as you heard there in Tony's extract Sharon Arden at the time introduced Ronnie James Dio to uh, Tony Iommi at a party and even suggested herself that Tony should do something with Dio while they sorted out the mess with Ozzy um, but yeah that's going to do it for this episode of Arc Sabbath episode 2.5 I'd like to thank all of my guests again for joining me uh, and that's Roy, Melissa and Uncle Steve and next time you will hear also from Alejandra from Philip Trummer and from Joe Sigler of black-sabbath.com so I think next week's episode is going to be the full shilling the full compliment you're going to hear from everybody about those albums or at least to some extent there'll be a bit of Aussie versus Dio that type of thing the usual kind of carry on you know um but yeah uh, that's going to do it for this episode I really appreciate you listening and I hope you persevere with me as I sail on on the arc yes I know it's not an ARK it's an ARC that's going to do it for me good night
friends and 